Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On DAB, digital radio, online and on 1089 and 1053 AM, this is Motty Meats, the emperor of fervent football punditry, majestically sits atop of his sheepskin-adorned throne as he holds court with a football legend. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. Hello, it's John Motson here, and over the next few weeks, I'll be hosting a new series of in-depth interviews here on Talk Sport. I'll be talking to 10 of my favourite football people, former players and managers whose most memorable moments in the game I've witnessed at first hand. In this edition of Motty Meets, I'm in conversation with former Coventry, Wimbledon and Wales manager Bobby Gould. Sanchez, Court, Young and Fashion are in there. Sanchez was in there. That moment is one of the reasons why Bobby Gould is joining me on TalkSport today. Now, welcome, Bobby. When you led Wimbledon to that famous victory over Liverpool in the 1988 FA Cup final at Wembley, it's a moment I'll never forget, and there'll be more of that later. But first, let's begin at the start of your career and your time playing at Coventry under the influential Jimmy Hill. It was... um... An unusual start, to be perfectly honest, John, because I'd already been at Coventry City uh, as a youngster and the manager actually sacked me and said I wasn't going to be good enough. Uh, his name was Billy Frith. I, uh, I left Coventry City and I went to the Labour Exchange and I, I became a, an apprentice heating and ventilating engineer. And I spent 12 months at that. Billy Frith got the sack and a fella called Jimmy Hill took over at Coventry City after Coventry City had been beaten 2-1 by Kingsland in the FA Cup. Now, you made your first team debut in 1963 uh, against Shrewsbury Town at the old Gay Meadow ground. It ended nil-nil, but your performance was specifically praised by Jimmy Hill. Yes, it was uh, in many ways. And uh, it was just lovely, John, to actually play for Coventry City at Shrewsbury. I'd been going to Coventry City from being a five-year-old. My granddad, Dickie Gould, used to take me up there. And then we used to take a pigeon with us, John, to the ground because my granddad's brother, Uncle Harry, wasn't allowed to go to Coventry City. And my granddad took this pigeon because Uncle Harry had pigeons. And at half-time, he would send a result flying. And then at the end of the game, we also had another pigeon that took the 
final result back to Uncle Harry, and he had that before before any news company did. So the pigeon carried the result before before it even made the airwaves. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Well, that's a great start. Um, now. Still with Jimmy Hill here for a moment. I mean, we all know what he did for professional football, the abolition of the maximum wage, all the uh, innovative things he had, names on shirts, that type of thing. But under Jimmy, Coventry themselves got on the map, didn't they? You won the Division Three title in 64, the Division Two title in 67, and you must have had a myriad of memories of actually playing for him well the, the beauty of it as well john um, unfortunately the listeners won't, won't be able to see this but i logged every game that i played i've got all those all that memorabilia i can tell you the day i actually played against uh, shrewsbury and that was at gay meadow and on the 30th of the 9th 63 and 13,619 people went there and jimmy hill believed in me john i had a trial on a saturday morning sunday morning out at um Shilton, uh, and he enjoyed what he saw. He said, I'd like you to come back this afternoon. I said, I'm not coming back this afternoon, Mr. Hill. He said, would you come back next Sunday morning? I said, yes, I will. I'm 15 years of age, John, and I'm telling Jimmy Hill I'm not coming back this afternoon. Well, when, when you and I hooked up just re- well it wasn't very recently but one of the last times we saw each other was Jimmy Hill's memorial service in Coventry Cathedral and we both paid a tribute didn't we yes. um, and you told a story about one day he walked into the dressing room before the game and predicted that you were going to score a hat-trick yeah that was against Ipswich in the in the run of where we were at the time we were playing Ipswich in his wisdom, J.H. had selected to play on a Friday evening and he walked in the dressing room straight over to me. I had the number nine shirt on and he put his finger out virtually on my nose and said, you, you young man, are you going to score a hat-trick tonight? We went out 5 and 20 past seven, half past seven. We kicked off at 25 minutes past half past seven, five to eight on the scoreboard that Jimmy Hill had directed. And nobody had them in those days. And on the scoreboard was nine, nine, nine. I had scored a hat-trick against Ipswich in 25 minutes. And I looked in the stand. He was sat there quite nonchalant and sat there. And I thought he was God. I really did. And it was a wonderful relationship I had with J.H. Well, it was a very personal relationship because I think around that time he provided two tickets for the World Cup final (laughs) for you and your wife, Marge. Uh, We weren't married by then. Well, I'm talking about your current wife. Yeah, yeah, my wife for nearly 52 years. (laughs) We're quite proud of that, I'll be saying. And she makes a nice cake, by the way. Oh, she makes a lovely cake, lovely cake. I've had one of those, yeah, go on. Uh, Anyway, so we... I walk in the office and there's a dispute about contracts and everything else. And he says, look, he says, let's forget about there. There's two tickets. I says, where for? He says, the World Cup final. I says, you, you, you're joking. He says, no. He says, I'd like you to have them. Take whoever you want. So I came out rushing out and Marjorie worked for a mum in a hairdressing salon in Coventry, Tile Hill. I said, we, we've got two tickets for the, the World Cup final. She says, I won't be able to go. My mum won't let me. I says, you're joking. She says, no, no, I'll have to do my work. So I had to wait for Marjorie until one o'clock. And I had a singer chamois. And the registration, John, was FAC 658C. Okay, so remember, always remember FAC, Football Association Cup. And anyway, so we got in the car. We drove all the way down to London on the M1. And we never saw another car. Everybody had dispersed to go and watch the, the World Cup final. And we got into Wembley, 
just about two minutes after they kicked off and we were in the south 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 end which is the old Wembley not the, the Wembley that we have now the one that's been turned around and, and we, 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 we just stood there in amazement really well, you couldn't do that today, could you? Leaving Coventry at one o'clock and then being in Wembley at three to see England play in the World Cup final. I've never heard that story before. Yeah, but there's nobody on the motorway, John. There, was no, there wasn't even a police car to be seen anywhere. But I never went above 70 miles an hour. Well, let's move on then from the World Cup final in Coventry City because the aforesaid Jimmy Hill called the players together just before the season to inform you all that he intended to resign and that he was going into television. That must have come as a bit of a shock, didn't it? It was a statement he made. You know, you've got big George Curtis, you've got Mick Kearns, you've got Bill Glazier, you've got Ronnie Reese, you've got all these great, great, great players that played for Comedy City. And he'd given the belief that they were good players and we became a great, great, great team. But the biggest thing that ever stuck out to me, John, was his actual statement just to the players was, I am not prepared to rely on 11 people keeping me in a job every Saturday afternoon. And, I, and, and that's what was contributed from JH to the whole team. And it, it, it's never left me, John, in, the, in, in, in my life of football that I went on to have and still involved through my sons and everything. I am not prepared to rely on 11 people keeping me in a job. Well, he didn't, and he went on to bigger, well, I say bigger and better things, things outside of uh, management. He, of course, we all know that Jimmy became a television personality. Now, in the season that followed, you changed clubs. You left Coventry to join Arsenal, and I'm told, well, I think the fee was something like 90,000, probably be 90 million today, uh, and you got a, you got a, you got a £55 a week, something like that. You joined uh, yeah. Arsenal with, with Bertie Mee as manager. Yeah, uh, there'd been a lot of discussions, and I actually went down to um, Highbury and scored a goal, and JH had told me that the goalkeeper came running out, and I, I, I went round him and just slotted it into the north end. And I, I, went, I was transferred for £90,000, at that same time, John, there was Alan Evans, who was at Wolverhampton Wanderers. He went to Liverpool for £100,000. So he was the most expensive. And with the VAT put on mine, I, was, I went for £99,000. And I also got £4,500, which it contractually, that was like 5% of the transfer fee. And that's what I earned from that move to, uh, from Coventry to Arsenal. Now, tell me about your Arsenal career, because... I would imagine we've talked about Wembley. You played there, of course, in the League Cup final. Uh, not a particularly memorable result for the Gunners because you lost to Swindon. Yes, but on a selfish point of view, I actually scored. All my life, you know, you dream, you, you watch Stanley Matthews and you watch Bolton Wanderers being beaten by Blackburn 4-3, Stan, Mo Stan Mortison scoring three goals, a hat-trick, and you go back yourself and you actually score at Wembley. And, and nobody can ever take that away from you after that, John. Yes, I was selfish, but at the same time, we, we were really disappointed. But there was one man that had a special day, and that was Don Rogers, the Swindon left, left winger. He was the only player, John, if you ever see highlights of that, his kit is spotlessly white. He never virtually had a kick. He just scored two goals, and it, it was a wonderful performance from him. But there we are, that was history. Now, that was also a controversial final. Uh, we've heard a lot about the Wembley pitch nowadays with NFL matches, but I believe uh, the pitch was in a mess because they'd allowed the Horse of the Year show to take place 
so close to a to, to a major final. And, and there is a story that at the end of normal time, the Arsenal coach Don Howe, who of course was Bertie Mee's number two then, had asked the referee to abandon the game due to the state of the pitch. Yeah, but we didn't know, we didn't know that, John. What it was, it was a, like a herringbone on a football pitch, and the drains that were were actually under, underneath the soil had been damaged by the the hooves of the horses jumping over the fences, and it didn't allow the water to run away so I remember that we walked out of the uh, the north end and walked out onto uh, Wembley and there was, there was players in tears John there was you know it's our own might have been our only chance of getting there luckily for Arsenal they they went on to better things but there was tears shed that day from professional footballers who wanted all throughout their lifetime to, to play at Wembley this is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Bobby Gould you scored 16 goals in 65 appearances for Arsenal, Bobby. And then another move quite soon afterwards, June 1970, you're off to Wolves. Yeah, uh, it's a, a situation where I, I'd been in and out of the reserve team. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't scored the amount of goals. At Coventry, I'd got 40, 40 goals in 80 games. And, and uh, there was a manager called Bill McGarry at Wolverhampton Wanderers. And he, he'd been watching me. He watched me at Peterborough. And he, he later told me when he signed me for Wolverhampton Wanderers, he loved the way I rolled my sleeves up when I was playing in the reserve. So I went, I went to Wolverhampton Wanderers. Uh, he took me out onto the Molyneux pitch and he said something to me that Don Howe and Bertie had never spoke to me. And that was when I walked onto the pitch, he says, I never want to see you in our half. And I said, Mr. McGarry, that is music to my ears. <laughs> and I went on to score. I went on to score 25 goals. Obviously, Wolves have had ups and downs since then. But there was one incident, Bobby, when you were at Wolves. You played a pre-season friendly in Belfast. Now, of course, we all know what the atmosphere must have been like in in that province then. And and when you returned to your hotel room, somebody shouted, "Don't shoot! It's Derek Dugan!" And just as he said it, a bomb exploded at the back of the hotel. <laughs> like. In professional football is life. You, you you shared rooms with different people, and I was at Coventry City. I was with George Curtis at, at Arsenal. I was with Bob Wilson. We and at Wolverhampton Wanderers. I roomed up with Derek Dugan, and we were just having a bit of fun. John, we got out the lift. We we walked over to our room. We put the key key in the door, and I just jokingly says, "Don't shoot, it's Derek Dugan." It says, "I said that a bomb went off, and we just we just dived on the floor, and and it was so it it was frightening." In. And we had Bill McGarry got us all together, and the manager John, he he, he was as white as your hair. It, you know, he'd lost all his colour. He'd forgotten what he's taken us to. But we actually played the game, and I I actually scored a hat trick against Glen Torren. So I had fond memories in in many ways. You also scored a hat trick against Manchester United in that Wolves spell. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you? I've still got the ball, John. Have you? Yes. Yeah. But my two sons, Richard and Jonathan, they've kicked it so much it hasn't got any clarence that it is actually the ball I scored a hat-trick with. Well, a spell at Wolves was followed then. But, well, I think the reason perhaps why you... One of the reasons you left Wolves, uh, they had a young striker called John Richards who was after your shirt. <laughs> Richie was a, he was a lovely lad. And they had a gymnasium at, at uh, Molyneux and... In the winter, they used to go in there and train. And, and John Richards, he could score goals with any part of his, 
his body. They were going off his backside, they were going off his heel and everything. Him and Derek Dugan got together and they were formidable. They really, really were. And they had two wingers in the great Dave Wagstaff and, and Jimmy McCallyog and Kenny Hibbert. And that's how I scored my goals early on and John Richards went on to follow that. Now, after that, you went to West Brom, not too far down the road from Wolves, was it? And where your manager was Don Howe, who'd been the number two at Arsenal. Well, the first meeting I had was with Bill McGarry, and he said, look, he says, I've got Richards coming through. He says, West Brom have offered 60000 for you. I'm getting my money back. Would you like to go? So I says, well, I'd like to go and meet Don Howe. I says, I'm not guaranteed I'm going to sign for him, because he was one of the persons that decided I had to go. I had to from leave Arsenal. to leave from Arsenal. Right. So anyway, so I went over, I met Don, and the first words I said to Don was, I said, Don, why do you want me? He says, Gordy, he says, I just love your attitude in the dressing room. I said, so you, what about on the field of play? He says, well, we, we'll try and improve that a little bit. <laughs> well, you scored, <laughs> you scored some goals for him at West yeah. Brom, but you weren't there that long. You moved to Bristol City. Yeah. You were the club's record signing. Was there any connection there because Bristol City then were managed by Alan Dix, who I presume you'd known from your time at Coventry? Yeah, Alan came to Coventry with um, Jimmy Hill, and Jimmy Hill, JH, was a, he was a great man manager, but he, he, he didn't enjoy the coaching side. And I think he came across Alan Dix on coaching sessions, like, um, and he, Alan came up to Coventry, played in the reserves with Coventry City, and, uh, and was a good centre half. But he educated us and he made us better professionals. And I felt that West Brom were going to get relegated. I said, well, I might as well earn £4,000 to put in my pension scheme because they paid £80,000 for me to go down to Bristol City and it was a record fee. So that's what I did. Talking of Alan Dix, I don't know where this has come from, but somebody told me about you had a wrestling match in the bath in a half-time row. It was John Sillett and Alan Dix. We're playing at at Hull and we're having a really rough period. And I went on and they, they got this um, left back at Hull and he kept breaking and breaking. And we, we played with three up front and he had the freedom of the part. So when we went in at half time, Alan Dix came up to me and was pointing his finger at me. And he was saying, you've got to tra- track the left back. You've got to do, the, do this and track him back. I says, I says, look, I'm here to score goals. If you want the best out of me, just get the ball in the box. I can't tread back all that way and then and then get back up foot. He says, he says, well, he says, I'll substitute you. I said, it's the best decision you have ever made. So he brought me off. So the players went out. I'm in the dressing room all alone. It was a big t- at the time when you just had the big bath and everything. So I put the taps on, the hot water and the cold water. And all of a sudden, somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around and the, there was a fisticuffs in the bath. And all I could see was me and Alan Dix scrambling about in a bath. And there was blood all over the place. So, but there we are. That was football, and we, we learned a lot about each other. Well, it probably explains why you why you didn't stay at Bristol's if you too much longer. <laughs> but but I tell you what, it was a good move, Bobby, wasn't it? Because you were whisked back into the first division as it was then by Ron Greenwood, and he signed you for West Ham. Yeah, it was sacrilege, really, uh, John, that I was to go to. Um, West Ham, because they were renowned for their wonderful one-touch football, Trevor Brookin letting the ball run and everything else. And, and at 28, it was an education. And especially when Bill Shankly said of me, he couldn't eat trap a bag of cement. 
that was one of his comments. And I went, I went to West Ham, and unfortunately, John, we it was a time when the house market fell apart, and we I couldn't sell my house in in Porter's Head, and so I used to commute daily, get up at five o'clock in the morning, drive, travel all the way up, and everything else. So when I went there, that. They never had a five-a-side, John. If you imagine, like, having a little five-a-side and get a score, a goal and everything, all they did was keep ball, keep ball, keep ball in different levels. And the circumstances were then that after about four weeks, I went up to Ron Greenwood. I said, Ron, I said, do you play five-a-side? He says, what's that goal? I says, a little goal there and a little goal there. We try and score goals. He says, how good is your left foot? I says, at 28, Ron, I says, not very good at all. He says, well, you keep playing. You just keep playing one touch and two touch. John, it was the best education in my life. Well, the Academy of Football, of course, as it's since been christened at uh, West Ham, was schooled by Ron Greenwood, wasn't it? Now, you were close to the cup final, another Wembley appearance possibly, but you were the unused sub for the 1975 FA Cup final between West Ham and Fulham. Was that a disappointment? We were 2-0 up. A young lad called Alan Taylor scored two goals in the final, two goals in the semi-final, two goals in the quarter-final. Wonderful performance. He came from Rochdale, lovely lad. We called him Sparrow because his legs were so thin. Anyway, so he scored He scored all these goals. He scored at Wembley. We're 2-0 up, John, with 10 minutes. And in those days, we were sat, I was sat behind Ron Greenwood and John Lyle. I had the biggest bout of coffin you could ever wish for. I just wanted to draw their attention to me. <laughs> They never turned round. They never turned round. And I never had the opportunity to get on at Wembley to play in an FA Cup final. And at that time, it, it hurt me. But Bonzo, Billy Bonds, a skipper, said afterwards when we got into the dressing room, he says, Gordie, I've never seen anybody, anybody celebrate as much as you've done. I says, Bonzo, I says, that would be the last time of my career that I'd ever get a chance to get on at Wembley. While you were at West Ham, and I'm going to remind you of something now, because I haven't checked this with you. Did you play in a league game at Bramall Lane when Tony Curry scored a fantastic goal that I was commentating on? Yes. You did. I thought you did. And do you know why I remember that? Not because I, I know I said it was a quality goal by a quality player, but this isn't about Tony Curry. This is about an earlier goal in the game for West Ham. And I think you scored it. And I tell you something. I was perched in a little commentary box on what used to be the cricket side on the square. of a three-sided <laughs> ground. And yeah. you ran back from the goal line, having taken the congratulations of the West Ham players, and you waved at me. <laughs> I was sat up on my own on one side of the ground. And, and you gave me a cheerful wave as if to say, what about that one? McDowell. Alan Taylor. McDowell went strongly for the return. There's Gould! I like you, John. I like your commentaries. <laughs> and I, I thought you were going to mention it on Match of the Day and well, all that. Well, I think at that stage I would have done. But then, of course, Tony Curry's goal rather overtook the occasion, didn't it? Yeah, uh, it certainly did. Brilliant, brilliant. Three West Ham headers. And the ball now with Gould. It's Curry who was in the way. And Woodward kept it in and found Curry. Field and Kamak to the left. Still Curry. What about that? A quality goal by a quality player. Now then, a second spell at Molyneux with Wolves. Yeah. What was the reason for, for rejoining them, so to speak? I'd been at West Ham. John Lyle had took, taken over. West Ham had played in Europe. I'd actually played in Europe, in Russia. I came back and uh, 
Bill McGarry and he came to me and said, we'd like you to come back. And that's what I did. I went and signed. But Mike Bailey, who was a skipper, he says, Gordy, he says, we will get relegated. And that's what actually happened. We got relegated and Sammy Chung took over from Bill McGarry this season later. And after the second spell at Wolves, you joined Bristol Rovers. And I've got another thing to remind you about now, because I did a g- <laughs> I know you're laughing. You know what it is, don't you? I did a match for, for Match of the Day uh, when Tottenham Hotspur, their one season in the second division after they'd been relegated. And Spurs beat Bristol Rovers 9-0, which was a bit of a record at the time for Match of the Day. And, lo- and I believe a certain Bobby Gould was playing on the losing side. Now we're standing forth. Turned across for Gould. That was the first clear-cut chance Rovers have had. Taylor shaking off Gould. Four Tottenham players ahead of him. Five now that Hoddle's made a run down the right. This is how the second goal came, really. Taylor! Peter Taylor makes it three. Morse. Offside, perhaps, but the referee's given the goal. Number nine. Well, nine nil. <laughs> How did you get over that? No, no, no. Let's go back to the original start, John. Okay. So I signed for Bristol Rovers. My, my debut game is for Bristol Rovers against Blackburn. Jim Smith was the manager of Blackburn. He tried to sign me before I went to Bristol Rovers. But we beat Blackburn Rovers 4-0 and I scored a hat-trick. And that was the week before the Tottenham game. <laughs> so there's, a, and there's, a, there's a more of a build-up after that because once we got beat 9-0, I'd been away with, with West Ham United to Norway and I'd arranged to go to meet somebody in Ullersund to be their coach. So I travelled all the way over to Norway, having been dropped off from White Hart Lane at Heathrow. I got on the plane, flew to Norway. I met the chairman of Ullersund. He sat down. We were about to have tea, and all of a sudden, the Norwegian sports programme says, we have a special game from England, Tottenham Hotspur 9, Bristol Rovers 0, and I was looking for a coach's job. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Bobby Gould. Well, you finished your playing career at Hereford, Bobby, where you also began to do some coaching. And I think that was your next ambition, really, because I believe that the turning point here involved Jeff Hurst and Chelsea. Yeah, I went on um, an advanced course with Jeff Hurst and because he was my hero and there was about seven or eight of us and I used to say to Jeff um, I'll clean your boots Jeff uh, do you want a cup of tea Jeff I was his lap, lap boy really and we had two years at Bisham Abbey where we were put fast track through and we we, we were educated in in all quarters and it was a, a fantastic uh, upbringing really and uh, Jeff Hurst on on our departure of the second year said Goldie says if I ever get a job you'll be my number two so we both went our own ways and I was at Hereford and I was playing for Hereford and I went up one day and in the afternoon to play in the reserve game and the young girl on reception says, oh, you've got a phone call from Chelsea. So I answered it and it was Jeff first. He says, Goldie, he says, what are you doing? I says, I'm just about to play in the reserves for Hereford. He says, no, you're not. He says, you're my number two at Chelsea. Uh, get your backside in the car and get, get yourself up here now, ASAP. And so that's how my uh, coaching period started in, in, in my footballing life. And you just missed out, Chelsea were then in the second division, you just missed out on promotion back to the first division in the 80-81 season. And I remember a game that I again was commentating on at Stamford Bridge. Uh, and I believe Jeff Hurst and you very kindly took me to a little restaurant uh, not far from the ground so I could do some homework on the Chelsea team. And you went out the following Saturday and you beat Newcastle 6-0. Did we win that by that many? Grace <laughs> <laughs> all got a good foraging on that left-hand side. Colin Lee is moving into the centre now. Here's Rhodes Brown taking on Cartwright. Lee! Oh, what a fine goal! And it's Hattrick on the anniversary of those four goals for Spurs. He's got three for Chelsea. And a huge roar greets a fine Chelsea performance. Bobby Gould and Jeff Hurst can afford to feel well pleased this weekend. Hursty and I, we had, we had a, a super relationship, you know, but unfortunately, John, as the games went on, we the next season we, we had a bit of a rough time, to be perfectly honest, and uh, we we. we just couldn't get into the top two to get them into the back into the first division as it as it was there. Jeff was having a bit of a rough time and believe we couldn't score goals and we looked at each other. We just couldn't believe what was happening and I said I, I said to Jeff, "What's going to happen?" He says, "I've got a board meeting tonight." So he went into a board meeting and I said, "What are you going to say?" He says, "I'll tell you when I come out." So he, he went into the board meeting. I was waiting downstairs and he came back out. I says, "What did you say?" He says, "Gordy, I said to the board, backers or sackers, they sacked us all right, John." Well, apparently that was the, that was the first time you were out of work in football, wasn't it? Yeah, we uh, yes, it was. I lived in funny enough. I lived in Camberley. Um, and I went and uh, joined Aldershot 
um, and had a period of time at Aldershot. And I also went to um, play for um, a team called Wimbledon, where Dave Bassett was the manager. We'll come back to Wimbledon very, very soon. You were also offered the Bristol Rovers job. Just to put this into context, Bobby, when you became the Bristol Rovers manager, you sought advice from some famous managerial characters who would almost symbolise that time. The Bob Paisleys, the Brian Cloughs, Laurie McMenemy. There were six, and I said to, the, I said to them all, I phoned, I phoned them all up, and I said to Laurie McMenemy, what would you do if you were a young manager? He says, uh, put as much scotch in the, in the press room as, uh, as, as you can. And he says, and when they've uh, drank all the whiskey, he says, they won't know what they're writing about. <laughs> <laughs> not, it's not including you in that. Job, no, but great, great managers in their own yeah, right, yeah. of whom, of whom you, you, you now kind of joined that club. Yeah, but at the same time, Brian Clough was one of those on on my list, and unfortunately, Bristol Rovers weren't financially well off at that time, and uh, the young girl on reception had to log every telephone call, and after eighty four calls to Nottingham Forest, John, she she says, "I've got hold of him. I've got hold of him." So I went running down into my office. I picked the phone up. I says, uh, "Brian, I says Bobby Gould here, young manager coming into the game. What do you recommend?" And the line went dead, John. It did. What you think? Oh, where's he disappeared? He's, he says, "The first thing I do, young man." is call me Mr. Clough. Then the second thing, young man, is make sure, make sure you get your backroom staff right. Yes. It yeah. took me seven years, John. Yes. Seven years to achieve that. My word. So you got some good advice from a lot of people, but you left Bristol Rovers. In fact, you left to go back home, so to speak. You, you became the Coventry manager in 1983. But I gather the circumstances under which you left Bristol Rovers were somewhat bitter. Is that right? It is. Uh, Martin Fluck, who was the chairman, um, was in a situation of uh, taking great exception. And he, I think he did everything he could possibly to stop me going. Um, but I was going back home, John. It, it was a dream come true. And I couldn't turn that down, being a Coventry kid and having that opportunity to. And I went back and um, I had a one, wonderful spell. And I, I took some young players and took gambles, Terry Gibson I bought from Tottenham Hotspur Reserve Team. And I had a, a wonderful time as a, as a manager, but you're not assured of your man management and how your style is, but in the first division we did really well and we, we had some great results against Liverpool and Aston Villa. Yes, you've signed 25 players in 18 months, believe it or not, in Coventry. And I remember the Liverpool game at Highfield Road because I, I was commentating. You were in your office. I remember going in for a drink with you after the game, or probably before the game as well. But anyway, you beat Liverpool, who were champions, 4-0. Mm. And that was seen as a really memorable day, if you like, in that particular period of Coventry City's football. Yeah, especially in the history as well, you know, and... Uh... I just felt that we we had something special. We, we had special, you know. And I I raided the lower regions, John, because I believed in them. I believed in the youngsters, and I gave them that encouragement to go out and play. and And that's what they 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 could show, and and they they, they played to their best of ability. And I think the Sky Blue supporters enjoyed it. And Gibson has beaten Neil. Is it on here for number four? Gin and Bamba to his right, and Gibson has completed a hat trick. What a marvellous day for Terry Gibson and for the supporters. Bobby Gould on his feet, but so are plenty of people in the ground. Six minutes from the end, Coventry have made it four. Now, despite that, you were fired 
during your second season at Coventry after a Boxing Day defeat at Luton. What, what sort of an experience was that, being sacked as a football manager? Uh, we, we've been having a rough time. I had a new chairman, and uh, his name was Mr John Poynton, who took over the football club. Um, and it's a circumstances as a young manager. Yeah, I've, I've done my time at Br uh, Bristol Rovers. I, I come up to Coventry City. Uh, I, I, I believe in my own ability. But the circumstances are then, John, that you, you've got to win games. No matter who you are or what you are, you have to win football games. And uh, the, that, that didn't bear fruition. So I, I was in a position of a new chairman coming in and, and saying, look, we, we've got to improve. We went to Luton. We got hammered. I think it was four or five nil. We got, we got beaten. He phoned me from Jersey where he resided. And I said, look, chairman, I says, you, you, there's my name, my solicitor. You put your solicitor in contact with mine and we'll see how we get on. But that wasn't to bear fruition. So I was in a position of waiting 24 hours before he came over. John and I walked into the office. He was sat behind his desk. I had the car keys of my car. I threw the cars at, at the desk and said to the chairman, and you can stick that on your backside. And I stormed off out. I got out into the car park, John, and I realised I hadn't got a car to go home with. <laughs> so much for the sack. So much for loyalty. Now then, after you'd left, of course, Coventry under George Curtis and John Sillett, with, uh, won the FA Cup in 1987, you had signed six of the starting 11 who won the FA Cup for Coventry. So it was a tribute to what the work that you'd put in. But in that same year of 1987, uh, Bobby Gould's life took a different turning because that was when you joined Wimbledon as the manager. I went back to Bristol Rovers. They they uh, approached me and and they'd been very kind to me. And I went back to I went back and I started to put together a, a good squad of players and then Sam a man came hunting and I always say to Sam when did you decide to make me number one and he says Gordy he says when you came here and you, you went down to South End and played in the Wimbledon reserve team and it was your attitude that I felt that you were you were right for Wimbledon and I went there and replaced Dave Bassett and what I did then John was I actually put my backroom staff together. I phoned up Don Howe and I said to Don, would you like to come and be coach at Wimbledon? And he couldn't stop laughing because he was, he'd been sacked by England and his first offer was from Wimbledon. So anyway, he came and worked with me for four weeks and, and he loved the lad so much that they took to him and he took to them and it was just a marvellous relationship. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Bobby Gould. We have to come on now to 1988 and this memorable season and day when Wimbledon won the FA Cup. I'm just going to run through the records here to, tell you, to remind you of the games. I'm not going to go through all of them until we get to the semi-final. You beat West Brom at home 4-1, Mansfield 2-1 away, Newcastle away, which was a good win, 3-1, and Watford at home 2-1 in the quarter-final. But I want to get on to the semi-final, Bobby, because against Luton at White Hart Lane, and you had a rather, uh, how can I say, unorthodox way of getting to the ground. Don and I had had a chat and we didn't want to take them into a hotel on a Friday night before the game. We thought they'd get out of control and everything. So Don said, right, I will meet X number of players north of the Thames and you will meet X players south of the Thames. I got in the um, bus that we used, a small, small bus and 
the and, team minibus you yeah, bought. Yeah, it was a team minibus. And I said to the, the kit man, I says, I'm so nervous, just let me drive. So he says, right, going across Waterloo Bridge, you've got to stop there because we've got a police escort. So I drive to Waterloo Bridge, get out of the car. These two policemen are on the bikes and he says, you've got to move on. We're waiting for a team coach. I said, this is it. They said, no, it's not. It's a, it's a minibus. I said, no, this is the minibus and we are Wimbledon. So we got escorted all the way to White Hart Lane. But the best part about it, when we got to White Hart Lane, one of the Jobsworths decided he, weren't, he wasn't going to let us in, John. I says, well, if you don't let us in, there's no game, pal. He says, but I'm waiting for a coach. I said, this is the coach. And I took him around the back of the, opened the back door and he saw all the kit and everything else. So we, we were allowed in. Well, that was remarkable. And, and of course, you, well, you'll remember that game, probably not quite as much as the final. But um, tell me about that because, uh, what was it, Mick Harford really put Luton 1-0 up? So you were, you were actually losing in that semi-final. Yeah, we were. And, and, and Dennis Wise and Alan Court and John Fashionu, they, they created uh, a, lot of, a, lot, a lot of presence in the, in the Luton penalty area and uh, and we went on we went on to win 2-1 and it, you know it was a dream dream come true for all of us John. So you were in the FA Cup final at Wembley against Liverpool to a team that will go down in Wimbledon history Dave Besant captain in goal Clive Goodyear Eric Young Andy Thorne Terry Phelan Dennis Wise Vinnie Jones Laurie Sanchez Alan Cork Terry Gibson and John Fashionu. The subs who came on, Laurie Cunningham and John's, the late Laurie Cunningham and John Scales. And of course, the Liverpool team compared to yours, well, it was absolutely full of internationals, wasn't it? I mean, Grobelar in goal, Nicol, Gillespie, Hansen, Ablett, Houghton, Spackman, McMahon, Barnes, Beardsley and Aldridge. Goodness me, even Craig Johnston and Jan Mulby couldn't get in. They were on the bench. So, Come on, how did you approach that final? What, what was the key behind it all for, you know for the, the underdogs? Key, do you know what the key was? It was on Friday lunchtime. Don Howe had been out to a dinner and he came back. He says, we've got to change Cork and Wise. Cork was playing wide right, Wise was playing wide left. And he said, what we've got to do is nullify John Barnes because he'd been brilliant that year, John. He'd been fantastic. So what we decided was that every time that Liverpool looked up, they were going to, we'd have Dennis Wise in front and Clive Goodyear behind him and John Barnes would be in the middle. They, he was not going to be allowed to have a kick of the ball if once Liverpool had got control. And Don had come back with this wonderful idea. and I, You know, that was a talent. That was a, the knowledge of Don and defending football. And he was brilliant at it. And every time that, that, that Liverpool got the ball during that game, John Barnes never had a kick. Well, do you know something? It's the, the goal itself... I remember coming down to Plough Lane, as I often did, to see you play a league game. Curiously, you played a game on a Sunday, I think it was against Charlton, and I saw Dennis Wise take a corner, and I saw Laurie Sanchez score with a header at the near post. And I thought, I must memorise that, just in case, because, you know, you're always, as a commentator, doing your homework, and it was quite a difficult one to pick out. Lo and behold, of course, the cup final at Wembley, the goal. Yeah, but 84% of our goals that season came from dead balls and that was Dennis Wise it was the delivery it was the delivery of the ball and they were they had they, and, and I inherited this from Dave Bassett you know it's not not all the glory of, of Don Howe and Bobby Gould it was from 
the Wimbledon management before and identifying that, you know, that, that nobody was ever going to stop Dennis because he got a free, a free shot, free curling of the ball. And once it, once it got, got, was travelling, then Laurie Sanchez was the, the one that got his head to the ball. Wise will obviously take it. Sanchez caught Young and Fashionu in there. Sanchez was in there. Typical Wimbledon goal. Dennis Wise delivers the free kick. Laurie Sanchez sneaks in and glances it into the far corner. Indeed he was. So it was 1-0 to Wimbledon at half-time. Liverpool were clearly shaken by the way you'd taken them on. But they did, in the second half, get a penalty. And I've got a little story here because John Aldridge at the time was shuffling on his way up to take penalties. A little bit like Pogba this season. He was trying to put the goalkeeper off with his run-up. And I rang Dave Besson, who lived near me, during the week, the Wimbledon goalkeeper. And I asked him what he was going to do if Aldridge took a penalty. And he said to me, doesn't matter what he does, I'm going to dive to my left. Well... We know the rest, don't we? I mean, what was your version of it? <laughs> well, the version was on Friday Friday night after we'd done a stint of training because Don says, we're playing at three o'clock, we'll train at three o'clock. After training had finished, three players stayed out. Dave Besant, Alan Court and Dennis Wise. And what did they do? They put the ball on the penalties, but ran up, checked, placed it to the left. And they did that time after time. And I'm in the training ground, Come on, you lot, get off there. We're going up. We're going up to the hotel. And they, they were out there all after. They'd have stayed out there. And you look towards their professionalism, and that was just sheer brilliance. And that went out, and that's what happened on Saturday afternoon. Dave Besant in the week told me that he's been watching where Aldridge puts his kicks. Besant thinks that, or thought the kick might go to his left or the right as we look if Aldridge decides to go the same way as in the semi-final. He did, and he saved it, and made history. The first time ever that a penalty kick has not been converted in the FA Cup final here, and Besson did guess right, his homework paid off. When did it occur to you, the, 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 sort of the impact, when did it hit you that you'd actually beaten Liverpool in the Cup final? Do you remember your emotions on the final whistle? Yeah, I, I can. I can. A, I've got a lovely picture of me and Don Howe. On one hand each, our right hand is going towards each other and we're tapping each other on the, on the head as well. John, everybody in the whole history of, of reporting football were, were against us. There was nobody, virtually nobody, that gave us a chance. But we had that inner belief. We had that, that belief that we could, we could win that game. Oh, the tension here. He's checked with both linesmen. Oh... Crazy gang have beaten the Culture Club. Wimbledon have destroyed Liverpool's dreams of the double. And all over the pitch, their players are celebrating something which a few years ago would have been impossible. Now, I've got a picture as well, because that was the only time in my career that I got into the winner's dressing room as soon as the match was over at Wembley. And the reason was... Des Lynham, who'd been doing the presentation on the gantry, came up to the commentary box, immediately the final whistle went, grabbed me and said, come on, we're going down to, to, to get into the Wimbledon changing room. And I said, we'll never do that at Wembley. Anyway, we, we made our way down to the tunnel 
And we had a producer then called Chris Lewis, who'd done a lot of filming with Wimbledon and got very close to the club. And Des slammed on the dressing room door. There were loads of people in the tunnel wondering what we were doing. And the door opened and Chris Lewis was standing there. And he saw Des and I and he said, come in. This was about, well, you only just come off the pitch after the celebrations. It's a fashion who I remember and Jones were lying on the floor covered in towels because they were so hot. And I remember a speech you made. I was privileged to be to, to listen to it, actually. And I remember you saying to the players, now, when you get back out there, don't give it too much of the old, aren't we great? Be careful what you say. Show a bit of respect to Liverpool. Don't lose your heads and start shouting, it, shouting the odds. I remember that speech. Do you? I do, yeah. I think I brought some, but I just wanted to bring them back down to earth again, John. You know, don't be leery. Don't be, don't, don't be. You know, we're the greatest. We're not the greatest, but we on that afternoon we were going to win that game of football. What about your celebrations? Uh, the celebrations was that I couldn't take them to a hotel because they they would have got out of hand so we had a marquee on the football pitch at Plow Lane we took them we took them all back we took them all back and John what I actually did was I learned from my West Ham days of being a player I said right I says you will have a table of 10 people and they will be who you want on your table 10 people win lose or draw and that and that's what I tried to learn from my own experiences of of being a player and what what would I want and everything else and me and Don got together and we enjoyed we enjoyed that you know coming together of the families it was a family day mm. and it was it was the, the club's day as well. well of course it was I mean I summed it up by saying the crazy gang have beaten the culture club. I mean, did you see yourselves as a sort of a team of upstarts that were taking on this so-called team of celebrities? They, and John, how did you see the gap? John, they were they were a brilliant team. We had to nulli- we had to nullify them. A lot of people refer back to the Vincent Jones tackle. A lot of people I remember it. Yeah, they, <laughs> so do I. Here's McMahon. Oof, Vinnie Jones caught him there. Everybody refers to it as in the first 10 minutes. John, it was well into 20-odd minutes before that tackle was committed. And, and uh, OK, yeah, if we look back now, it, it might have been sent off, etc. But, it, but it was, it's the commitment of the team. And, 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 and Jonesy, he, he, he could be naughty, but we had to try and make him as a professional, better professional than what he was when Don and I went there. And that was our endeavour, to make them all better, because they all had a reputation. And I wanted to take that reputation away from them so they could, they, they could enjoy their football careers. Well, you were enjoying yours at this stage. Because I tell you what, you had a total of three seasons with Wimbledon. The positions in the old first division, of course, the Premier League hadn't come about then. Seventh in your first season, twelfth in your second and eighth in your third. I mean, this wasn't just a team of, you know, misfits who'd got together and come out of the sort of fourth division. This was now an established first division club with an owner, Sam Hammam, I remember very well, and, and, a, and a chairman, was it Stanley Reid? Stan, Ro- yeah, Stanley yeah, Reid. Stan, they were brilliant. I mean, it was, it was a close-knit club. How, how important was the actual culture of the club to what you, to what you achieved? It was converting people into being good people. And Don Howe was a good person. I hoped I was a good person. And, and, and the circumstances were that Sam, a man, in, in the end, his ability to, to put things together. And, and, but unfortunately, it, it became so powerful for Sam and I couldn't control 
the whole situation. Sam was in charge. He was, and, I, and in the end, it, it, it was really tiring, John, physically and mentally. And, and, and in the end, I said to Sam, I'm going to give you six months notice. He says, which club are you going to? I said, I'm going to no club, Sam. I just want to rest the football because that had take me, taken so much out of me. I, I felt I needed a rest and I needed to come away from football. So when you finally finished full time in the game, Bobby, and you had time to reflect and to think about what you'd achieved, which was a lot uh, as a player and a manager, really, if you could sort of sum it up in, in one sort of go, as it were, what stands out for you as, as, as the highlights of your career? The biggest highlight on the field? Scoring for Coventry City against Manchester City at Highfield Road. And my first goal ever. Diving header, Willie Humphreys crossed it, an Irish lad crossed it. I dived, headed, headed it into the, into the net because of all the time that I'd supported Coventry City. That's my dream. And finally, Bobby, you've been good for the game. I've known you for many years. Has the game been good to you? Yes, very, very, very good. John, I'm 72. Where the last 30-odd years have gone, I do not know. I really, because it's 30 years since I've and it's flown by. It's flown by your career as well. You know, where have you been? Where have you travelled? What have you done? And, and, and those, and we are so lucky, John, to have done what we've only done in our own lifetimes. And I've got a special programme for you as well. My word. It, it's the, oh, I never knew whether you would keep one for yourself. I don't think I did. And I... It, to the listeners out there, it's Liverpool Wimbledon. The 107th on the 14th of May, 1988, FA Cup final. Well, I'm and that's my that's Bobby Gould's present to you. I'm John. privileged to receive this, but I'll tell you a little story. The thing I did keep for a while was my match notes of that final, thinking I'll never do one, uh, you know, with such a fairy tale attached to it. And you know what? I gave them to Sam Hammam, your owner. Yes. And because I always did them on a board, he found a way of scanning the other side and he put the two boards in a frame and he put this well not this program but the the program official program in the middle and had it on his office wall so i was honored really that wimbledon remembered the fact that i was the commentator and now i've got the well i I wouldn't have forgotten anyway because bobby that was a that was the most amazing cup final i ever did i'll be very honest with you can i say this is this series that we're doing it's intended that yours should be the first interview to go out. And if it is, I just want to say you've given us a fantastic start. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and also having you as a friend. Bobby Gould, thank you very much. Thank you, John. The undisputed world heavyweight champion of football commentators in another knockout interview. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. This has been Monty Meats. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode and I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.